Welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast exploring sex, relationships, and liberation. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, we have licensed clinical social worker and certified sex therapist, Tamara Pincus. Join us for a conversation about celebrating sexual pleasure. Together we talk about sex and spirituality, being considered too much, and questioning the narratives of authority. Hello, dear listener. Welcome back to Modern Anarchy. Today's episode really continues the conversation that we started last week, right? I opened the episode about our fantasies last week, talking about the impact of systems and how that creates what we dream about, both erotically in our fantasies as well as our day-to-day typical existence, right? Our narratives are deeply shaped by the systems and the cultures that we exist in, and there is no getting out of that, right? And I think today's conversation really hits on that. Tamara shared how her son had been going through abstinence plus education and how that is a mandated education in their state that you should feel shame if you have sex before marriage, right? Take a deep breath with that one, right? And these cultural narratives deeply impact how we see ourselves and our actions and our sexuality, right? Tamara had said, you know, even if you didn't go to church, right, or experience that deeply religious upbringing, I think you still are impacted by this. And God, I just want to even go further to say, I don't care if you didn't grow up religious. Lucky you, actually. But If you didn't, you still exist in this society, right? We all are living under systems of oppression that we're just little goldfish gobbling up some water up in here that is our normal day-to-day, and we don't even think about it, right? Let's look at science. The pudendal nerve, the nerve that's running through the pelvis. You know what that word means in Latin? Shame. Y'all, it means shame, okay? So whether you grew up going to a church on Sunday and got the purity messages that I got, or you escaped that sort of trauma, it is so abundant in our society. Everywhere, okay? I want you to pay attention to media, right? When they talk about sex, do they giggle and get really tight in the chest and struggle to even have the conversations and make it feel uncomfortable? Do they you know, make strange faces at any sort of mention of BDSM or any sort of mention of having sex with multiple people or even more, right? What are the conversations that aren't happening in those spaces, right? You might think, sure, I didn't grow up in these societies that were deeply repressive, but the reality is that that society impacts all of our media, impacts all the ways that we are living through the world in such small, little discreet, 
subtle ways that deeply influence how we move about through the world. Let's even talk about the white dress of a wedding. Okay, where do we think that's coming from, right? And of course, we now have the empowerment to make these decisions, right, of is this a value system that I respect or do I want to craft my own? Another one of those is mononormativity, right? The idea that you must love only one person and anything else is wrong, gross. If you practice sexual fidelity, beautiful, right? What a great practice. But to have this additional mononormativity bias that anyone who does something else is wrong or gross That's what we're trying to challenge here, right? This world of messages and assumptions that teach us this is the one and only way. There is going to be a diversity of ways that people choose to practice sexual connections, a diversity of ways that people want to practice relational connections. And so we're trying to dismantle this world that taught us This is the one and only way, and anything else is gross or wrong. Now, when I think back to my earlier life, okay, taking it way back to when I was wearing my purity ring, and not as a statement of empowerment for where I'm at now, but rather as something that I was intending to practice. I remember I would wear my purity ring and... I would hear about some of my classmates who had sex before marriage, and I would think, wow, that's so sad. I really should be praying for those lost and broken people who are just throwing their bodies out there like that. How, how sad for them. And I moved out of purity culture, but continued to judge myself for having sex with more than one person, right? That's how I was supposed to live a holy and pure life was finding this one person I would only have sex with for the rest of my life. And society, you know, we use this word monogamy, but no one that I really know practices monogamy. We all often practice serial monogamy, the act of having one person at a time. And so when I first started having sex with multiple people, I judged myself, right? Ooh, I'm I'm doing this thing. Wow. Oh, God, I'm such a whore, right? Still unpacking the ways that purity culture and society had so deeply laid in cultural messages about what it means to do these things. And when one of my first partners came to me and said, hey, I practice polyamory and I think I want to do this with you, you know how I responded? I said, uh, no, if you actually loved me, you would only want me and me forever. And again, a reflection of where I was at at the time, okay? I've continued to unpack these messages to realize, wow, okay, I can love multiple people. I can hug, kiss, sex. I can do that with multiple people. And it doesn't mean that I love them any less It doesn't mean that they're not important to me. I have this value system of moving through the world with sexual self-governance, right? This is not something that someone can ever take away from me. Sure, at times I might choose to only have sex with one person because that feels good for periods of time. 
Or sure, in my self-governance, I exist in community structures. And when my choice to act and have sex with other people is going to impact others in that community, I have a conversation before I do something about that, right? But at the end of the day, my sexuality is mine. I have self-governance over that and choose when I want to explore that intimacy with some people and when I don't, right? That is up to me to decide and hold the consciousness of the beautiful community that I connect with. But this is not something I could have ever imagined doing when I was judging people for having sex before marriage, let alone having two people that you have sex with in your whole life, let alone two people at the same time two people in the same room, right? Like all of these have been such a stretching of my imagination in terms of what's possible. And I will understate that I've never been happier and more connected to my pleasure than where I'm at now, right? When I was back judging people for this, I was not experiencing the deepest pleasure that I am experiencing now, which makes me ask really deep questions about free will. When I was in that environment, living with such judgment, was I really free in that space? Purity culture told me what to think. It told me what to believe. And I didn't really see any way out of that. Anything else was gross. And knowing the pleasure that I feel in my body now with my connection and my freedom, I look back on that time and feel like I really didn't have the freedom because of the systems and because of the ways that that taught me what was okay and what wasn't. But of course, this is a yes and. We do have empowerment in this moment to choose with the reality, with the society that we're in, are these values that I want to live in accordance to or are these values that I've been sold or taught are the right way to be? The biggest thing in terms of changing those perspectives, right, it was the community and the culture that taught me this is the way to be. And so, again, it is the community and the culture that can also be the antidote, right? Finding new media outlets that give you a different perspective, finding new friends, tuning into podcast. Hello, dear listener, right? These conversations that I have had with so many different guests about sexual liberation and freedom have so profoundly changed me. All of you dear listeners out there that write in saying, wow, this podcast has helped me to think about new ways of exploring intimacy and you're so thankful for these conversations. You're changing me. There's days that I'm scared to put out these episodes and the things that I'm saying because of these systems and to have your words, to have these guests who are so vulnerable about their lived experience. It's so profoundly life-changing, right? Everything I study about relational psychology is that these relationships shape our sense of identity and my path of sexual pleasure is so directly a testament to that fact, right? Of the ways that my mind has been shaped and changed. And sexual liberation is a diverse practice. There's going to be so many different people who want to practice sexual fidelity, sexual self-governance, openness, right? Great. We need diversity of thought and opinion. And I hope at bare minimum that we can let go of the ideas that if you have sex with more than one person, more than one person at a time, 
that that doesn't in any way make you less pure, less holy. In my eyes, that integration to your pleasure is divine. And I hope that we can understand that this world is full of so many beautiful people. It is normal for us to be in relationship with a lovely, beautiful, gorgeous human and to also look out and see that in the world and see other people that excite us sexually, right? It is a choice whether we enact those desires, is a choice whether we build those relationships where that is what we want to explore. And again, we are all going to have different desires with that. But I hope we can get to a space where we can let go of shame for that natural human ability to see beauty in the world, to connect to Eros and the erotic. And I hope that these conversations, dear listener, are creating space for all of us to explore our own path to sexual liberation and to feel more connected to our pleasure without shame. Mm. I am sending you so much love, okay? I know that there are so many shameful messages about sex, and I hope you know that you are accepted in this space. You are celebrated in this space. And I love you, all you dear listeners out there. Please continue to practice your pleasure activism because that is how we're going to change the world. All right. With that, let's tune into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So then the first question I like to ask each guest is, how would you introduce yourself to the listeners? So my name is Tamara Pincus, and I am a licensed clinical social worker and certified sex therapist. I run a practice in the DMV, so in the D.C., Virginia, Maryland area, and we do sex therapy and sex education and um, and also coaching for open relationships and for dating coaching and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Great, great, great. I'm excited to talk to you today about all those things. Mm. <laughs> yeah, Thank I you. know. Yeah, when you sent over the topics, you had sent over, you know, fat liberation, ethical non-monogamy and BDSM and spirituality and sex. And I'd want to ask if you like took a moment to breathe into your body, where would you want to start? Do any of those topics really speak out to you now? I mean, I think what's coming to me at the moment, maybe because you made me take a deep breath, is the sex and spirituality, please. Mm, Okay, (laughs) here we go. Let's dive down the path. So tell me how that connects right now for you, even in that uh, moment of taking the deep breath. I mean, I think you know, taking a deep breath is just sort of like dipping your toe into the spiritual waters, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm always thinking about like, you know, feeling into your body and like, how does that connect with who you are as a sexual person, you know, and how sexuality is really a very spiritual experience. 
and I think it's interesting that organized religion sort of wants to disconnect you from that in a lot of ways. So that's the thing that has been coming up for me a lot at work lately, mm. and you know, in life, sort of dealing with people's sort of religious trauma around mm. their sexuality mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out how to help them find the place where they can be a spiritual person and really embrace their sexuality without having to sort of be like, well, I don't believe in anything because I'm a sex positive person or because I'm embracing my sexual freedom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely been a running theme of conversation on the podcast because of my own experience growing up very Christian, very conservative Uh Christian, you know, where sexuality was not allowed, let alone queer sex, let alone anything Mm -hmm. beyond that as well, right? So Mm -hmm. there's been many conversations on the podcast about that and the ways that it impacts our ability to enjoy pleasure, right? So I'd be curious, you know, you mentioned that you're seeing this a lot in your work. What are you seeing? I mean, I'm just seeing a lot of people who have a lot of guilt and a lot of sexual shame. And a lot of times that sexual shame will literally lead to physical issues like vaginismus, which is sort of a tightening of the vagina that makes any sort of penetration really painful. And that gets tied up with this idea that like the only sex is penetrative sex. So there's this like well, then I don't get to access my sexual being at all, or I don't want to access my sexual being because it's going to mean that I have to do this thing that's really painful and unpleasant. So that's showing up a lot. And it's been interesting for me as a person who's never been a Christian. Mm. Um, I was raised, you know, reformed Jew. And, (laughs) you know, it's not like my family was particularly sex positive, but certainly there wasn't this like, don't go there at all ever sort of message. Yeah, that's definitely what I got for yeah. sure. Yeah, I got the the paper test. I don't know if you've heard of that one. No. Is that where you're supposed to squeeze your legs together? No, it was like we went into chapel and they were giving us a sex ed conversation and they uh, put two pieces of paper together with glue and then ripped them apart and said, this is what happens when you have sex with someone that you're not married to. You, When you stop and leave that person, you lose parts of yourself and you're damaged. So kind of like the chewing gum. Oh, I haven't heard that one. Tell me this this horror story. <laughs> oh, the, the chewing gum. I think Elizabeth Smart talked about it. She was uh, this woman who was, as a child, kidnapped and sexually assaulted. And she'd come from a very mm. conservative Christian background. And she'd been told, like, you know, if you have sex before marriage it's like your gum that's been pre-chewed or something. Ugh. So she just left after having you know, had this horrific experience feeling like now she was impure and was never going to have a positive sex life. And she's done a lot of activism around this, this kind of thing, which is great. I'll have to reach out and see if I could get them on the podcast. It'd be an interesting conversation, surely. Right. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I'm the ways that that will impact you. I think that was my question too, reflecting on my own experience of like, yeah, how many people were in that crowd when they were doing that, you know, church mm-hmm. chapel discussion that had had a sexual assault history and were sitting through that, having to grapple through these messages and what that means. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's horrific to think about the ways that these narratives cause so much harm for our ability to tap into pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. And I feel like to some extent, we've all got it, even those of us who haven't, you know, grown up in a religious space. Like I, um, 
during the pandemic, my son had a class on abstinence. He were in Virginia. The state law is that you have to offer an abstinence plus curriculum, which means you have to have a discussion about abstinence in your classroom. And um, but it was the pandemic and we were all home. So he was like, do you want to sit in on my class? Because, you know, I'm a sex therapist. Uh, yes. <laughs> like, Hell yes. And and the, the teacher who is, you know, a gym teacher. Um, <laughs> That's like the class. No training in sexuality yes. <laughs> whatsoever, you know, and this ridiculous curriculum that they put together is like, if you have sex before marriage, your parents are going to be ashamed of you. Oh. And I mean, and, and, you know, my, my son doesn't want to talk in his class, but like, we're like saying things in the chat. So, so finally, eventually he's like, except if, if you're my kid's name's mom. Um, Hilarious. She'll be okay. Yeah. Um, I think that's so damaging for kids who have been sexually abused. I mean, and most of the time like when you're like 12 and you're having sex with a teacher for instance you may think of it as a thing that you're choosing to do you may not understand that this is a problem or that this is not okay and so to tell people it's not okay to talk about really like furthers victimization of these vulnerable kids absolutely makes me so mad yeah yeah. So I actually went to, um, I spoke with the people at the school system and I was like, who is writing this curriculum? And they're like, you know, <laughs> volunteers and we have a nurse. So at least we have somebody who knows what they're talking about. And I'm like, what kind of sexuality training does this nurse have? And they're like, you can't get on this committee unless you get a school board member to appoint you to the committee, <laughs> to the curriculum committee. Like that's never going to happen. What school board member is going to be like, I'm going to appoint the poly sex therapist. The sex totally. education committee. Like that's not fucking happening. Right. Sorry, is it okay if I swear? Yes, on please curse on the, <laughs> I think there are multiple reasons to curse on this podcast about these topics, right? Yeah. The power structure is inherent to that because I'd be curious, like, if they get to demand an abstinence only has to be taught, like, what about a pleasure-based teaching? We don't talk about pleasure. We don't talk about pleasure. uh, Like, there's, there's like, a list of reasons they give you of why people might have sex. And those reasons are, like, your partner wants to and to keep up with, like, what other people are doing. And, like, none of it is, it feels good. can't say that (laughs) make the list of reasons a teenager might have sex (laughs) the fact that you are rushing with hormones that are telling you the thing that you want to do right now is have sex yeah yeah (laughs) god i was really hoping that we've moved you know optimistically away from this more so but it's sad to hear that this is still happening it's still a thing i mean at least it's abstinence plus so they at least have to tell you (laughs) something about sex but that just means they're gonna like show you pictures of, of uh, what STIs look like and try to scare you. 
For sure. Yeah. And I um, do psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So, you know, drugs are definitely a part of my perspective as well. And it reminds me a lot of like the dare conversations, right, where it was like, just say no, 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 no. And then now we have like, a ton of data actually on how those programs were ineffective, right. And so it's just, mm -hmm. I think the long term path towards this is that we'll realize this is not one, it's not trauma informed at bare minimum, right, mm -hmm. it is not trauma informed which is right. horrific, let alone the effectiveness of it, if we could research these things. But just in general, it's horrific to think about the people that are being impacted from this. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. terrible. So when you have that client, you know, who's going through this, you know, what are some of the first steps that you're doing to support them to, you know, write a new narrative? I mean, I think it sort of depends on the person. I tend to be pretty individualistic. So we want to look at where did this message come from? Is that a person or a group of people who you consider to be reliable now? Um, how has that message served you? What kind of messages might help you feel differently about what's going on? And then with something like vaginismus, we may also want to be trying like other kinds of interventions. Like have you, you know, been to a pelvic floor physical therapist or, you know, I feel like for vaginismus specifically, and this is not even a thing we can access in our area at this point, but I really wish that we had access to sexological body workers mm. who could like do internal work mm -hmm. while focusing on pleasure and totally. really take things slow and really take things slow and do like do this process from a not medical place. Yeah. Because I think like when we look at, at this kind of thing as like, this is a disease and you're sick or something. No, there's nothing wrong with you. Your body did what it needed to do to protect you. And whether that was protection from like a past sexual trauma or whether that was protection from religious trauma, it doesn't matter. Like right now we're trying to like help you release that trauma from your body and also help you find pleasure and joy and pleasure and joy doesn't have to come from putting things in your vagina right right more expansive ways to do that yeah. yeah it is not required totally i am so glad that you mentioned how the body is you know keeping you safe right in that mm -hmm. act i think that's a really important piece for people to understand in multiple different ways even outside of sex right like anxiety mm -hmm. all these other things like frequently it's it's the reaction of our our body, you know, our mind trying to keep us safe. How do we adapt? How do we cope to these things? And and being able to have that compassion for ourselves and the way that's showing up, I think can really change the model away from this, you're diseased, you're broken, you're this to a, oh, my body was trying to keep me safe and it still is. How do I work with that in relationship with kindness and compassion rather than that hatred? And We've definitely had uh, Yoni massage therapists come onto the podcast and talk about that mm -hmm. work, talk about, you know, combining mm -hmm. spirituality in the body, or um, mm -hmm. I've had other surrogate partner therapists come on and mm -hmm. that's another powerful space. So yeah, absolutely. And that's another thing, like surrogates are amazing. I wish I got to work with them more, but there's just not been enough local to me and enough clients who are willing to sort of make the leap because I think it feels scary for them. Yeah, it's hard, hard. Yeah, definitely. 
I know some of them fly, so that's kind of, you know, the world of it since it's so like a little bit more rare to get access to, but yeah, it's difficult. And then do you have access to the means, the resources, all the fun things of this. So I think that's why I like to have this space, right, where this podcast is free. Anyone can listen into it and be able to have these conversations. So hopefully we can get outside of the the barriers to resources under this system and have more access to these conversations. But the reality is a, a conversation can only get you so far when it's a practice of embodiment, right? And being able to have that, you really need that in-person experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think there are some embodiment practices that you can learn by working with somebody online. Like I have a coach who works for me who does some of that kind of stuff, like sort of coaching three people through that sort of thing. But yeah, it is different online. Also, you know, there are some upsides to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. And I mean, at least for me, it's been empowering to like step into a reclaiming of sexuality and spirituality and the union of that. Yeah. It's been so powerful to like step into that like divine whore persona and like what does it mean mm-hmm. to embody that? I'd be curious if any of your work takes clients through that sort of like reclaiming process. Honestly, I haven't had a lot of clients who've been going through that process, though I think I personally have been going through that process for Tell the last me. like yeah. I mean, so I've been polyamorous. Well, I tried it in college, but we didn't even have that word. Sure. But then I also have been doing it for like the last 12 years or so. Mm-hmm. And I've had times where I've really felt bad about my desire to connect sexually with lots of people. I remember for asex, you have to do this class that's called a sexual attitude reassessment. Mm, I've heard, right? Yeah. And um, and you have to like, at least the one I went to, you look at all of these different kinds of porn, and then you talk about your feelings about the porn. And the one I went to was like fairly low key, um, like it wasn't anything super extreme. It was like BDSM and like sex with people with disabilities and elderly people having sex and all these things. And I left the the class and I got in the car it was in New Jersey so I was driving home to you know northern Virginia and and I just started bawling my eyes Mm -hmm. out and I was like I am such a slut I have all of these things that are supposed to be so edgy like having sex with older people or having sex with people with disabilities or you know engaging in BDSM I had done all the things like there was very little in this you know, class on things that were supposed to stretch our mind around sexuality that I had not done. And I felt terrible. Like I was like, oh my God, what is wrong with me? Because I had also sat with all these people for whom this was like mind-altering and they were opening up and they were like, whoa, it never occurred to me that people in their 60s and 70s were having sex and it never occurred to me. Oh my God. Like, (laughs) you know, people with severe disabilities in wheelchairs were having sex and, and and I'm like, you know, so I had to sit with all those feelings and even though in theory, those feelings were not about me, I knew that I had done a lot of those things, you know? And yeah, I was like, I am such a slut. So I called, Mm -hmm. I called my then partner and he was like, you know, your sluttiness is actually like a thing I really like about you and other people like about you. So it's been sort of going from there, being able to sort of work on embracing it, being able to sort of understand that like sexuality is a way I connect with people. 
it's a way I get close to people. I do sometimes really enjoy having sex on the first date. And I feel like I learn things about that person. Mm-hmm. You know, I try to be as safe as possible, but it's fun for me. And yeah. I love doing it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Right. Yeah. And to also, you know, move into the fat empowerment piece. I think there is something about being a person in a bigger body, having always been like, you know, my mom was first told that I was overweight when I was like six months old. Like I oh, wasn't wow. even eating real food. Wow. <laughs> and I was like put on diets all through my childhood. And like, it was really clear that like my body was wrong and Ugh. people were not going to be attracted to me, which is funny because now like the existence of BBW4 <laughs> is like a thing I'm familiar with. Sure. <laughs> like, you know, when I was younger, I thought nobody is going to ever love me because of this. Oh. And then to be like, okay, but all of these people <laughs> like really having fun with me, really having fun with my body. And it does sometimes feel like a rebellion and like a, a proving that that was wrong. Yeah. So empowering, so empowering to flip the narrative, right? To flip mm-hmm. that script that started from, like you said, six months old. Wow. Like I can't remember a time that I didn't know that my body was too big. Mm. Yeah. That word too, right? Yeah. Too big, too much. Like I'm often worried that I'm, that I'm too much that I say all the things, but I'm sort of leaning into it. Like I do scare some people away by saying all the things, but you know what? I'm not sure I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Same words to that because I think that some people might still be in that space. I mean, might be, right? We know people are still in that space of I am too blank. Yeah. Yeah. Too blank for who? Great follow-up question. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because... The person who is the right person for you to have a relationship with, have sex with tonight, (laughs) is the person who doesn't think that's too much. Is the person who's like, that's great. I can't get enough of it. Um, And if you hide yourself and they don't really know who you are, if you're like, I'm going to pretend that, you know, I don't have these really radical thoughts or that I am not as into you as I am or whatever it is like they don't know what they're getting they don't know what they're agreeing to so there's a whole consent piece there and then like they don't know you and I think sometimes when people are really hiding who they are they also can feel like this is gonna sound weird but they also can feel like they're unlovable because the people who love them don't know them Mm-hmm. so I think there's also this piece of like radical vulnerability and radical openness and you do have to be careful like you can't be open with everyone but the people who you want to give it a shot to having any kind of relationship with your life you have to have them see you enough to know if they can handle it mm-hmm. like you don't necessarily have to tell them everything you know you can start gentle you can be like yes. what do you think about polyamory before you're like by the way <laughs> yeah yeah exactly that gentle start into it right because like you said in this world at least currently we can't always be safe 
and out about all these different aspects of ourselves, unfortunately, right? So, so mm-hmm. that nuanced practice of figuring out where it is safe and the empowerment mm-hmm. to hold back at times, right? And take right. those little steps towards deeper vulnerability that allows more intimacy, like you said, to be seen, to be loved. And it's mm-hmm. so hard, though, when we're like moving about through the world. And the reality is that we internalize the relationships to our friends, our family and the larger society, right? So if the larger society says you're too blank, then we we feel that we know that. And so it, it makes it so scary to share those parts of ourselves with another person because the fear is I'm going to be ostracized. I'm not going to have connection. And, and like you said, though, then that creates that active process of internalized shame though about it. And then you're sitting Mm -hmm. with that. And, and that's how we get the psychological distress around these pieces. You know, like there's just so much growth that can occur when you start to bring those pieces out into safe relationships, right? And have Mm -hmm. that intimacy of being seen, loved, celebrated for those parts of yourself. Yeah. But if you do it to someone who, that's the the scary part is if you do it to someone who then meets you with, you know, if relationships are mirrors, right? You open up to someone, you tell that and they come back and be like, ooh, you're gross, what the fuck, right? Like we Mm -hmm. we then feel that and then you don't even want to, you want to close back into the turtle shell even more right so it's like Mm -hmm. being able to have these really powerful corrective relationships where you bring that out and like your partner right your partner said Mm -hmm. that to you i love your sluttiness that is one of the favorite parts of that right like that brings us into more authenticity more ability to share these parts of ourselves so it's so it's so hard you need those relationships where you're loved for that Mm -hmm. to really keep going into that deeper authenticity Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why whenever I'm working with clients, you know, who are stepping into queerness, stepping into polyamory, stepping into BDSM, all these things, I'm always asking them about their community, right? Like, who are mm-hmm. the people that you have in your life to talk to about these things? Because you talk to one friend and they look at you and, and do that, right? Oh, gross. What the mm-hmm. fuck are you doing? Like, that. that's hard to sit with that. And we really need... Right a community of people who can understand, who can celebrate, who can talk to us, who get the depth of the spiritual practice, right? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, Kat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's good. She's a good baby. Yeah, I was um I was listening to another podcast that I enjoy um and they started having these conversations about sex. And one of the hosts started talking about how they had never had any conversations with their partner about sex. And it was a, yeah, exactly. It was a jaw dropping moment for me too, where I was like, oh yeah, I'm up in here, you know, like what's the narrative we're constructing? How are we playing? What are we doing? Like what kind of impact, Mm -hmm. you know? And then someone else Mm -hmm. is like, I've never had a conversation with my partner about sex at all. And and it's just like such a reminder of, of the vast spectrum of, people's, you know, ability to have these conversations, their understanding of the language, you know, of sexuality. Right. And there's so much that they miss because there's so much you can do with your sexuality, with being playful. You can you can create a whole world and you can experience things in your body that like there's just no way you would stumble upon randomly. <laughs> and yeah. And it's hard when you're like sitting with clients and you're like, you know that they want to access these spaces, but like they can't even say the words. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I'm curious about that expansion, that play. Do you have any sort of examples that you've heard or in your own life that you would share for the listener who's still trying to grapple with what it would mean to play more in this space? I mean, I feel like for for me, I keep thinking about like just crazy role plays. Like <laughs> sometimes my partner pretends to be a fairy and puts on fairy wings. Um, yeah. You know, and you play kidnapped by the fairy prince. Like, yeah. <laughs> at kink festivals, you always see people in these like dinosaur outfits. I, um, <laughs> my partner and I are currently in the process of negotiating a Tyrannosaurus and Stegosaurus <laughs> role play. <laughs> I will be the Tyrannosaurus. Hilarious. <laughs> I, I mean, like, and I think these things are so out there and they're the kinds of things that you would do as like a kid. And like when we grow up, we think we have to stop playing. But I feel like, you know, sexuality is such a fun place to like play with all these things and ideas that we might have like put away for later and been like, that's too immature. We can't pretend to be dinosaurs. We're grownups. <laughs> totally. Yes, that is one of my favorite questions to ask clients. Like, how mm -hmm. did you play as a child? And when did that become disconnected, right? Because I think it's right. so clear, at least to us, how that is mm -hmm. present for people's sexuality, right? But some mm -hmm. other people, I think we've been so socially conditioned that, you know, sex is for this, sex is for mm -hmm. that. It has to be serious. Right. Like <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, you want to, like, I, I feel like you got to be able to giggle. Yes. And you got to be able to, like, go out there and say something like completely crazy but that is only possible with partners who can handle that um who can handle the weirdness yeah how do you think <laughs> that you got into that space of, of being able to play like that because I think I've really struggled with that space I've always been more mm -hmm. like anxious perfectionistic so I don't want to put myself out in a weird way that then I might get judged so I'd be curious like how did you step into that liberation of being able to play more I mean I feel like I've always had a fair amount of it. Like, I feel like as far as my sort of sexual development, I started by reading a shit ton of romance novels starting mm -hmm. when I was very young. And there was always like the vampires and, and the, the people being kidnapped and falling in love sure. with their kidnappers. Like yeah. all of the romance novel tropes are like mm -hmm. really problematic as fuck. But here we are. So, um, <laughs> So like, you know, started there and then I, and then, you know, being able to dress up as a vampire and, and also like figuring out ways to do bondage, which I was doing like in high school and in college. And then I found my way to the kink world in college. Like I went to my first rope workshop and it's interesting. Like, so I like saw Jabari, which I like never would have imagined from like, you know, all the stuff from the romance novels that I was reading, people were getting tied up. They weren't getting tied up like that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But like, and then, and then in college we were doing stuff with like saran wrap and like. Mummification. Yeah. I mean, some level of mummification. I mean, I feel like, yeah, saran wrap is too hot. It's totally not my thing now. But um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't know how sweaty you get when you're wrapped up in saran wrap. But anyway. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. So like, I mean, so for a while after that, I actually did like in my 20s try to become like normal. Like I wanted to get married and I wanted to have kids. So like, and this dom that I had been seeing who was much older was like, 
you're never going to find somebody in the king community that you can marry and have kids with. So you've got to find like a normal person and then oh. convert them to the way. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I ended up marrying this guy, this guy that I got set up with through somebody I worked with at the Jewish community center, who was his mother. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> so yeah. And then we started exploring all the things and, I was like, I need an open relationship. And then, you know, that was 15 years ago that we decided to sort of start playing and opening up. And 12 years ago, we were like, okay, we're going to be poly. I recently separated from him, but I feel like in the scheme of things, things went okay. Like we were never like got super angry or mean or anything. It was just like, we just kept drifting. Yeah. Yeah. And changed over time and then had to make that decision. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious too, like, how did those first conversations go? You said converting them to the way I'm thinking like reverse evangelism compared to the other way of anti-sex into a more expansive <laughs> sex space, right? Like how yeah. did those conversations go? I think people get afraid to bring those topics up. Yeah. I mean, it was like 20 years ago. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I just sort of told him what I was into and like, showed him the toys I had at that time and he was like open to experimenting with it but it didn't I don't think it really clicked until a few years later we started actually my cousin who is also kinky poly and queer and who is literally the best um, ended up coming to live with us for like maybe six eight months and she and I started going out to golf clubs and of course if you go to the golf space you meet the kink people <laughs> so yes. we started getting invited invited to kink parties and and sort of that's how we found our way in there and then like once we started going to parties and doing things then sort of snowball mm-hmm. so getting that like lived experience is what really helped to expand the perspective right and then we went to like a kink conference like a couple years after that which is like it's just really eye-opening the first time you go and you're like people in costumes and doing all kinds of scenes and like people doing like age play and puppy play and like all the things yeah Yeah. you know the littles with their coloring books sure yeah the people like pulling the cord around like neighing you know like (laughs) yeah do you remember what you felt that first time that you were there and were taking that in so powerful and I was so alive I mean it's interesting so at that time when we went to the first one like I had gone to social work school intending to be a sex therapist but I you know there were no jobs in sex therapy there were no group practices that would hire somebody to do sex therapy so so I was doing public mental health and it was like I mean I had some powerful connections with clients and it was profoundly depressing because our society is really fucked up. Um, and you can only do that for so long before you're like, holy fuck, man. Um, so I yeah. was getting to that point where like, I couldn't really do that anymore. And it was like, that conference was like around the time when I was like, I really do need to leave and start my sex therapy practice and and get my training in sex therapy and, yeah. and really do this thing. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about what you were saying with the, uh, the weight of that work. It, it, I don't know how you would characterize it, but to me, it feels like trying to stick like, you know, just these little plugs on a sinking ship of the systems, right? Like you can see 
how much the systems are impacting people and causing the pain and causing the results of what's showing up in the therapy room. And you're just like this little bandaid on this, you know, right. wildfire of shit. And then you have that moment of like, okay, I can keep doing this one on one individual work. But like, what about the upstream problems that are causing all of this? Like, and I, my first job in social work was case management. So I was Oof. like going and picking people up in neighborhoods that I had never been to and driving them to places like the social security office and yeah. you know, driving them to doctor's appointments and taking them to the grocery store. And yeah, I mean, it was just like the world that they were living in and the, and like knowing that they're trying to live on like the $600 a month they get from social security and how are they supposed to afford a place to live and like being able to eat and like driving around to all the different food banks, trying to get enough food for people to live for a month. It was, it was just impossible. And then I started doing quality improvement. So I was basically then tracking all of what we were doing and just seeing how broken it was. And then like the system, mm -hmm it got to a point where they were like, well, we're no longer going to pay for you to drive people around, but we still want you to do the same work. And really the only way that these agencies can function is if the social workers are billing five or six hours a day. So you basically, for the things to actually work, you had to commit fraud. Like it was crazy. <laughs> oh, my heart goes out to the, you know, so many social workers that are right there in mm. that spot, right? Yeah. So many that are carrying that weight, holding that and not getting paid adequately for the labor that they're doing. You know, it's insane. Yeah. It's completely insane. Yeah. yeah. It's a reflection, right, of the systems, of the pain, mm -hmm. of all of that and, and the systems working how they're supposed to, unfortunately. Right. Right. Like it was never we never meant to really take care of people with serious mental illness or people with serious disabilities. I mean, yeah, we're letting them die. Mm. Um, anyway, I have some feelings about that. <laughs> no, and it's good. And I this is the space to talk about them, I believe, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to talk about this because a lot of people don't have that positionality, right? To see what you saw in those systems. A lot of people mm -hmm. are living their day-to-day, -day, not even really understanding what's going on on the other side. Yeah. I mean, I had never been to that part of the city. I had never seen schools with bars on the windows. That's just crazy. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yeah. so that's why I think it's important to talk about it and get that perspective. And and that sort of thing will radicalize you really quick, I, I think. Or it radicalizes you or just makes you more in despair, right? Depending on how you handle mm -hmm. that. But it, it will change you having that perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I do think I've been radicalized yeah. and I also am in this space of the, lately where it's like, I just feel like there's not enough in the world I could do. So, but I do find that now I do end up working with a lot of people who are working on these issues. So like, I'm not necessarily in the trenches, but mm -hmm. like I'm working with people who are in a, in a position to do something. Sure. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I believe in a pleasure revolution. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that the more that we are embodied and have pleasure, right? The mm -hmm. capacity in your body to feel that is so great, so expansive. And I, I love when we can bring people into that. And I think that I believe that the more that you step into that, 
the more that you feel everything. It's not that you just feel the pleasure, you see the world and the things and you feel that as well because you are so embodied. So that act of like stepping into deeper embodiment of your pleasure and intimacy and connection, I think makes you become more like in tune with the other pain points of the world in such a way mm -hmm. that I believe in, in the revolution and the activism of that. If we're getting people to be more embodied and waking up in that way, you're gonna look at that, you know, pain point and also cry about it and like I hope that brings people into more movement you know absolutely I do feel so many people have had to shut down entirely in order to be able to get through their day yes like you can't you know you can't be in this world and I mean I just feel like if you if you're not able to embody pleasure it's just too much to sit with all the pain which is why, I mean, I'm sure you love pleasure activism. That book was really revolutionary for me, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm hoping to continue that conversation on this podcast, right? Like, mm -hmm. what does it mean to continue to step into pleasure activism in all these different mm -hmm. ways and with the different people like you who can speak to a positionality from your lived experience of what you've learned from it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I believe in that. I really do. I think that the more that we can get people there, because when you think about something like, you know, the amount of people that are on SSRIs these days and, mm -hmm. and the realities that that causes that narrowing of your emotionality and your range, which we can, yeah. Do I'm not sure I believe that that works, that it works that way for everybody, but that's probably because I've been on SSRIs for 20 years, <laughs> but sure. I, and I had like my, um, either tantric awakening or onset of persistent er genital arousal disorder while on SSRIs. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. And I, I hate even that diet that like that uh, framework of negativity of some sort of diagnosis. But how do you feel about this? Oh, yeah, no, I'm still I'm still kind of pissed that somebody tried to give me that diagnosis. I mean, I think what someone did like a professional. I mean, it wasn't like in a doctor's visit. I consulted um, one of the Tantra experts through ASECT. And that's what she thought it was. And then I talked to some of the other tantric experts and they were like, you need to learn how to ground so you don't like have surprise orgasms when you're rocking around because that's awkward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that framework of, of problem. Yeah. Mm, how do you feel about it? I mean, yeah, I think it's a really problematic framework. I mean, I know there are people who identify as having that diagnosis. I haven't met anybody <laughs> who identifies that way so it would be interesting to talk with them about like how did they get to a place of seeing this as this hugely negative thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah these are the ways that like these systems are impacting how we see our reality right right I mean, and I do think that maybe part of that is like, if I were walking around having orgasms and not feeling the pleasure of them that would suck and if I didn't feel like I had control of that either like that would really suck yeah yeah of course of course yeah that makes sense that makes sense mm -hmm. it can be helpful to have that but I'm just thinking about you know the DSM also has female orgasm disorder and I think it said that upwards of 42 percent of women will struggle with this disorder at some point in their lifetime that's a high percentage yeah I mean, I feel like so many things that are considered to be disorders are not disorders. Like, thank you. <laughs> like yeah. erectile dysfunction 
No, people just don't always get an erection when they want one. That's just your body doing what it's doing. And the more you like label it as something terrible and make people stressed out about it, the less likely your cock is going to work. But who cares if your cock is like working? Like you can still have a very pleasurable experience. This makes me want to promote Michelle Renee's soft cock week coming soon, or maybe not, and that's okay. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways that you could apply that, right? In terms of how we, uh, there's that one quote that it, I think it's like it's it's no sign of health to be well adjusted to a sick society, right? Like when we're talking mm-hmm. about depression, anxiety in these worlds, like. Again, no sign of health to be well adjusted to this society. And I think obviously there's a nuance in that, right? Of we nuance of knowing the world is this messed up and having these things and still finding the pleasure in what's within our control and that framework. But just the ways that we use language to pathologize these things, it deeply Mm -hmm. impacts how we see our sense of self, right? Right. Huge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So being able to like challenge those things quite literally of of, Mm -hmm. does that, does that word disorder even feel accurate? What sort of frame who's Mm -hmm. coming in with that perspective? And, and like we were saying earlier, right with Christianity, right? Here's another frame or, or, or restrictive religions in general. I know it's beyond Christianity, right? Like Mm -hmm. here's this frame of what sex is and what it means and what you need to do. And we asked that question of, do you align with that? Do you want to, right? And there's there's a lot of ways that the field of psychology does that as well, right? And we can ask bigger mm-hmm. questions of like, do you align with that? Yeah, absolutely. And really giving people a chance to question. I've got a bumper sticker in my head now. Question authority. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm so thankful that you exist for the clients out in the world that come from these different identities because the reality is, you know, depending on who your therapist is, you come to them saying, hey, like, I've always had this fantasy of doing consensual non-consent. I've always wanted to have like a rape fantasy and have that played out some way, right? Mm-hmm. You look at them, you're like, yeah, okay, like, let's talk about that, right? Uh, another therapist would look at them and be like, oh my God, that's deep trauma. I need to save this client. I need to get them out. I need to do this. Right. And yeah, and maybe this is a way of you working through your trauma. And I feel like we don't talk about kink being a way of really working through things as much as we should, because there's, yeah, like play therapy works for a reason and sexuality makes it so much more powerful. And so like, there's a reason people will keep replaying their traumas. But if you do that in a conscious way, you do that in a way where people feel like they can take their power back it's beautiful and Mm -hmm. it helps people unhook from these negative stories and it helps people release the trauma that's held in their body Mm -hmm. so like why would we be against that because you are challenging my paradigm of existence right (laughs) i have never heard of anyone who does this that's so wrong so as a therapist i'm going to work from my lived experience rather than expanding to acknowledge my bias well yeah (laughs) right that's the scary part i think it's hard uh, you know because like you got additional training in asect right and all those pieces and so like you said you went to that meeting where other people were shocked Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they were people who were just beginning the process of getting ASEC certification. Like I do think people get less easily shocked when they go through that process, but I do think that there's still, still places for more education. Uh, and those are certainly to plug myself for, for a minute. And it, and by the time you air this, it's going to be far past when this class happens, but we do run classes on like BDSM for providers, consensual non-monogamy, one, one, like those kinds of classes where people can get the set, sort of basic sense of like, what are these things? So they could be maybe less judgmental when the client walks in the room. I mean, I remember the first time I taught a class on polyamory for therapists, somebody came up to me at the end of the class and said, I hope you have really good clinical supervision and really good therapy for yourself. What do you think they meant by that? I'm curious. I think they meant, oh my God, you're polyamorous and you're completely nuts. What is wrong with you? <laughs> but that was like 2012, 2013. Like when I started doing these things, nobody knew what I was talking about. And it's been kind of wild to go through, to go from that place to now, like everybody wants to learn about this new thing. And I'm like, I've, I've been doing the thing for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and I had been called all these things. Jesus. Uh, yeah, that's what scares me. I mean, my professor talked about like, doing uh, research and presenting the data at conferences with other clinicians, right, about mm -hmm. just like basic relationship satisfaction and non-monogamy mm -hmm. and all these things. Mm -hmm. And and they'll show the data and it's very clear that like people enjoy this, people thrive in this, people love that. And then they'll have people, uh, clinicians that come up afterwards and be like, so it's it doesn't work, right? Like it's it doesn't work. And it's like they can't even sit to actually integrate the data that's right in front of them. Right. I mean, well, if it doesn't work why have people been doing it forever and oh <laughs> and like oh. does monogamy work because that's a great question. show me the data <laughs> yeah. that's true totally um, yeah i have a new housemate elizabeth chef who's been oh, studying cool. ethical non-monogamy for like over 20 years and she's done all the long-term studies and she's done all the research with kids and like how do the kids do in that environment and the kids do great i mean they complain that they can't get away with anything because <laughs> their parents everywhere all the time but you know life is rough like totally generally totally. they do well and i look at like my kids like my older kid is already engaged in ethical non-monogamy he's got two partners one in idaho and one who's local and and he's doing a great job of it and i'm like i who has those kinds of skills at 17 yeah <laughs> right yeah dr yeah. elizabeth chef came on and we talked about like the risks of uh bdsm and and mm -hmm. the expert testimony experience that they have mm -hmm. it was really fascinating but yeah, I mean, the data that I've pulled for my dissertation was saying that some of the younger generations, about 40% of them are saying that their ideal relationship is non-monogamous. So I think we are actively changing the tides, right? Like your child at 17, you know, has access to so much more uh, content on this than you did, than I did, right? That is right. like sparking so much. Yeah, I mean, there was really like, when I was they <laughs> I think the the term polyamory was coined in like 1998 or something like that was the year I graduated from college <laughs> like right yeah right. like we didn't have a language we didn't have 
any sort of resources. And so to be able to, I mean, not that it wasn't going on for the entirety of history, but yeah, like the, the resources weren't there. And I feel like the other thing is that people, particularly in, you know, our generation, generation X, a lot of our parents got divorced. Like we all saw our parents got divorced. So like, I feel like there's a lot of like, how do we not have that happen? And I think part of it is like, well, maybe we can love other people and not leave the people that we're with. What a concept. Life-changing, right? Yeah, yeah. And because of the positionality of different generations, you're having to, again, like this conversation is hitting on in multiple ways, unpack the internalizations around messaging, right? So mm -hmm. at 17, if you're you're learning from that age of polyamory is okay just like a basic idea polyamory is okay you know mm -hmm. that perspective makes the you know we talk about internalized homophobia right there's a mm -hmm. level of internalized mononormativity that all of mm -hmm. us from the generations before that right have mm -hmm. and so there's so much to unpack in that process of you know i like to call it a psychedelic experience in and of itself right mm -hmm. if your reality yeah. your paradigms are shifting of what it means to be in love and and share that mm -hmm. there's so much to unpack but but once you do mm -hmm. hmm, there's a lot of joy on that other side it's true it's true mm -hmm. and i think maybe with part of your positionality and my positionality we we see potentially a biased sample, obviously, because of our work, but how much mm. infidelity occurs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all over the place. I know. I mean, but do you have a choice if you are in a relationship where your partner doesn't want to have sex and you have a sex drive and you don't, if you don't think you can have a conversation about polyamory, and you don't think you can live without sex for years on end and you don't want your marriage to end, you don't have a lot of choices. So I think that like, I feel like one of the things is you have to focus on, like, how do you make relationships safe for people to even bring up the subject? Yeah. What are your thoughts? We as a culture don't have great communication skills. We can get very heated when people bring up things that are difficult and we don't have the skills to sort of breathe through it and calm ourselves down and figure out how to like deal with the new scary information in a way that's not hurtful so yeah and that brings us back to like sort of the basics of like how do we help people learn to self-regulate and that brings us back to pleasure it's all related Absolutely. Yeah. When I'm working with couples, like that's one of the first things, right? Is where are you feeling this in your body when your mm -hmm. partner is saying this, right? Where is that? And if you can mm -hmm. get people to start that process of connecting to your body, I think that's step one to being able to have any sort of difficult conversation, right? Yeah. I am feeling activated. I'm noticing my heart rate start to increase. I feel like I want to cry. I need to maybe go take a walk. I maybe need to do some deep breathing here. Can you hold my hand during like just those basic things, like you said, so many people don't have. And so then we get in such an activated state and things spew out, right? Where if we could have that practice of first, like being with the body, I think we'd be in a radically different world. Yeah. Yeah, we would. It's hard though. I don't want to do that. I just want to scroll on my phone. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
But like you've been saying, right, on the other side of that is pleasure, right? Starting mm -hmm. that journey of embodiment and going deeper into that, the other side of that is pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious if you could look back to your younger self and the journey, you know, you're stepping into the kink community in college, all those things. Is there anything you'd want to say to yourself back then before you got into this long journey of liberation and pleasure? What would you have wanted to say? I mean, I think the thing that my younger self really needed to hear was that I was lovable the way I was. Mm -hmm. Oof. Because I think there are a lot of things that I did because I didn't think that I was lovable. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I can hear those things cognitively and like know them cognitively, but it's a whole, yeah. yeah getting that to, all the way to your gut so you can really feel it is rough. And I still have moments where I don't believe that it's true. Yeah. Yeah. How do you support yourself in that? Well, I have my my true anxious attachment moments where I where sort of <laughs> poke at my partner. He like tells me what I need to hear. Um, that's true. I mean, and I do also when I'm in a better headspace, I'm able to really sort of breathe deeply and remember that there are people around me who love me for who I am and that that's okay. I feel like a lot of my stuff is about my relationship with my parents, like everybody. And I'm very sure that my children know that they're loved. Mm. And that weirdly can help me through it. Mm. Knowing that like they know that I love them and I know that they love me and that we have stopped that intergenerational cycle that has mm. gone back since before anybody in the family can remember powerful powerful to change that paradigm for them yeah mm -hmm. and be that parent in the room that is excited for your kid <laughs> when they're having sex i hope right i mean only so far yeah totally yeah i mean you're you're you don't want to be in the house when it's happening of course of course of course but but to write it that's a whole thing in and of itself too. Like, what does it mean to be a, a sex positive parent? I mean, that's probably a whole conversation, yeah, let right? Me leave you guys alone, bye. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. The condoms are over here. Yeah. <laughs> you need lube. There's lube. <laughs> totally safe, 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 safe. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you're you're changing the narrative, and I'm so thankful that you're here doing this work and that you're impacting people by being your authentic self. Mm -hmm. I mean, I try. I do say a lot, and I feel like if my kids heard this podcast, they'd be like, "Mom." Ah! <laughs> Poor thing. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I'd be curious too, you know, as we come towards the end of our time, if there's anything that maybe we didn't hit on that you still wanted to talk about. Otherwise, I have a closing question I can guide us towards. I can't think of anything that we missed that I desperately need to talk about. So ask me the question. Okay, great. So the question that I ask everyone on the podcast is what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? Well, there's so many things. Yes. Please come back on the show and talk to me again. 
(laughs) (laughs) I mean, I wish people knew that sexual desire outside of their current or primary relationship was normal. (sighs) Oh, I could hold so much space for that right there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm broken. I'm bad. Something's wrong with me that I am attracted, that I see beauty in the world outside of my one relationship. Right. And so many people shut themselves down. Like, oh, no, I'm feeling this bad thing. I shouldn't be having these feelings. And they just shut down. They don't want to feel too alive with anyone. If they feel too alive, then they might get turned on. They might get attracted. Oh, it hurts to think about that space. Yeah. That's why I couldn't do it personally. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't do it either, I, but I just, I told my partners that it was happening. I told my, I told my high school boyfriend that I had a huge crush on this girl. <laughs> I yeah. had to speak to my partners about it. I couldn't exist in a world where that was how I was going to go through connection was, oh, cool. I'm connecting with this person. It's really great. I feel this, this desire. Oh, oh, suppress. Oh no. Oh no. Suppress, suppress, suppress. Mm-hmm. That world of, of disconnecting from what is happening in our bodies, that world of pathologizing that, of, of putting a moral judgment on that. I mean, I, I could not live in that world. Yeah. And I think those questions of like, oh, do we open up the relationship or not? You know, like everyone's on their own journey to figuring that out, but at least a paradigm where you can acknowledge that there's other beauty in the world. And then you get to choose whether you want to engage your time and energy, those limited resources in engaging in that in a different way is totally up to each person, each, you know, relationship, but at least opening ourselves up to this world where we can acknowledge like, hey, that's an attractive person. I have feelings about that. I'm now going to decide whether I want to open it or keep our relationship closed. Like just that world of more space for the natural human appreciation for beauty in the world, I think is really important. Yeah. For me, what comes up with that is like, it has to be another kind of beauty because if it's beauty as the culture defines it, it doesn't include me. So the word beauty for me is always like, my my eyes are narrowing I'm doing that like I'm suspective of the word beauty yeah because <laughs> it has so much tied up in that of what's like normal beauty mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense that makes sense and needing to expand that then right and expand yeah yeah and like so many people have just such beautiful souls and such beautiful ways of thinking and like why are we so caught up in what they look like Good question. That's a good question, I think, to leave the listeners with of, yeah, what are your concepts of beauty? Are they narrow? And why are we so stuck in those? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love the space where we ask more and more deep questions without any answers. And hopefully we're leaving the listeners with many of those today. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been great to be here and have this conversation with you. Of course. It's such a pleasure to be connected to other uh, pleasure radicals out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Where would you want to plug for the people that are connecting with you, want to learn more about your work and all the offerings that you have? 
just tamarapinkus.com is my website. Um, you can sign up for our mailing list there to hear about all our events. The vast majority of our classes are online. We do occasionally do some in-person things like we did a fat pool party last summer, which was so cool. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and then we also have a meetup. So if you want to just see the classes, but you don't want to get our like long email that you don't want to read, like you can just join our meetup. And then if you're looking for a thing to do, it'll show up. Great, great. Well, thank you for coming on to the podcast, sharing your expertise, your lived experience with all of the listeners today. Great. Thank you so much. Of course. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And head on over to modernanarchypodcast.com to get resources and learn more about all the things we talked about on today's episode. I want to thank you for tuning in and I will see you all next week.